Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. Howdy. Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. And today we're going to be talking about sleep. I have Nick Reel on the podcast. He is someone who knows a lot about sleep and has been my coach for the past few months to help me work on improving sleep and some habit stuff that I had built from years of night shift and just abusing myself over the past few years. So I know he knows what he's talking about, and I thought he could help out, so I invited him on the podcast. This is also my first interview, so please bear with me as I get my feet wet interviewing. And just a heads up, the sound quality is not the best. We did this over Zoom, and it sounded fine as we were doing it, but then listening back to it, there's definitely some feedback on Nick's end. I hope you're able to get through that, even though the sound quality is not the best, because the information is really helpful. So let's get on with the podcast. So before we get into all that, Nick, like, what's your story? Like, who who are you to tell me about sleep? All that stuff. Who am I to tell you? That's a good question. That's a very good question. Well, as Will said, guys, hi, my name is Nick. Pleasure being here. A little bit about me. I have been a fitness and nutrition coach for the past 15 years. I got started off at the very ripe age of 15, coaching my my football team that I played on in the weight room and helping them stick to the nutrition plans that the coaches gave out. So like at a very young age, I was just instantly like attracted to helping people better themselves in performance, how they perceive themselves, confidence to hold on yards. And I loved it so much that I went and pursued a degree in comprehensive kinesiological sciences at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, did a stint there. That's really where I started really taking personal training and nutrition coaching seriously. During that time, I was granted an opportunity by a former manager of mine to come on board with a new venture she had as a corporate health and wellness company inside of an airport. It's very, very strange environment because there is no concept that has ever been done health-wise inside of an airport outside of like government, like health stuff. There are no gyms that exist in airports. So like needless <laughs> to say, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And at that time, all I really knew was like, okay, like bodybuilding and like conditioning. That's really all I knew. So I was like, fuck yes, let's go. I'm all in this. So I sat on with her and boy, oh boy, I got bitch slapped with reality. Not only did nobody care about my abilities to teach them how to do curls, or how to do gassers. But the culture and the community at the airport was so different than anything I had ever encountered. This was my first real experience at the time with working with like sedentary, like general population. So I had to make some adjustments really, really quick. Every client that I've worked with over there over the past seven years, they have all come to me for weight loss. Every single one wanted to lose weight, gain muscle, gain confidence, the whole nine yards. But there was always one thing that was blocking them from really having the results that they could have. And it took me a couple of years to figure it out. 
And I remember vividly with one of my clients where he was doing everything right. And he was wondering why things just weren't going the way they were. So I asked him one day, like, hey, how are you sleeping? He's like, oh, my sleep is like fucking piss poor. Like literally like verbatim. I'm like, okay, so let's stop there. Let's just work on your sleep. Let's get that in, on point first before we even go ahead and try losing weight again. He's like, okay, cool. You're, you're in my hands. I'm like, awesome. So we fixed his sleep. And that one did not take that long. And after he got his sleep quality on point, the weight literally fell off. And I noticed that. I was like, huh, there's a connection here. So I started doing that with every single one of my clients. When they started with me, okay, we're not losing weight. We're going to fix your sleep first. That's what we're going to do. And every single one of them, when they followed the steps appropriately, got the results that they came for, and they were able to keep them. So I was like, oh, shit, this is actually something that definitely needs to be like replicated. And this is how I get results. It's absolutely like amazing. People are losing weight and they're sleeping better. They actually feel good too. Holy shit. So that's my story with clients. Me personally, I've been around sleep deprivation my whole life. My dad is ex-military. Uh, for all you military people out there, I don't need to say anything more. He was in the Navy. He worked on a sub. Sleep deprivation just happens in the military. It's just how it works. And my mother so, is a teacher. So <laughs> long hours, <laughs> sleepless nights, high stress. So I've been around this forever. Like my dad has trouble sleeping. My mom definitely has trouble sleeping. And I had my own battle with insomnia a few years ago. I went through a three-year stint of it. And it took me three years to get, I know, right? So everybody has their reasons why they struggle with sleep. I'm just going to be super open with mine. It was my own ego. It was me that was the problem. It wasn't necessarily like, oh, hey, there's like some hormone imbalance or like a brain chemical issue that's going on. No, the only issue was my own ego. And I just kept beating myself into the wall trying to grow a business. Yeah. I know, super hypocritical, right? I mean, the fitness and nutrition coach wasn't taking his health seriously. Yes, I know. Exactly. We all do this. We're just the same as you guys who are listening. And I vividly remember the one night that I said, you know what? I'm not going to turn the TV on tonight and fall asleep with it on all night. And I woke up the next morning. Holy shit. Everything I've been having my clients do, I finally got to experience. It changed my life like right then and there. So that, that's where the passion comes in because nobody should suffer with sleepless nights. Whether yeah. it's self-induced like mine, or for whatever other reason. And so many people here in this country do not sleep well. And yeah. poor sleep is tied to the obesity epidemic that this country is facing. What was it like? What last year was like 43% of Americans are clinically obese. Yeah. All weight problems are going to be the result of some disruption to your sleep. That's huge. That's absolutely huge. And nobody has really like took the lead on like, hey, solve this problem to solve the bigger problem over there. Yeah, man. Yeah. Insane. That's I mean, my story. <laughs> makes much sense, man. I didn't know some of that. So thanks. Like for those of you who don't know, Nick was my, uh, he's actually my sleep coach. I hired him to help him help me with sleep. Cause I used to work night shift, uh, for a whole stint there. I was sleeping six times a week rather than the usual seven. Um, and just kind of needed to get a little bit on a better path as I moved more in this trajectory because I just wasn't getting where I needed to be. And 
So help had Nick and he, he's helped me out quite a lot and um, really like his products as someone who is a huge nerd and studied a lot of stuff. So that's kind of why we're chatting. So as far as like, you clearly work more with like gen pop and like weight loss, but as you know, like I work with people who seem to want to run very far. Right. So it's going to apply a little more towards athletes here. Um, but some of the basics are going to be the basics. And first off, like how much sleep do people need? Like, is it true that most people are going to need like seven to nine hours? Um, do some people need less? Like, what do we got? So I'm going to start that with telling you where that whole seven to nine hour thing came from. Maybe you already know, but I'll just tell you again. That was a meta-analysis of a meta-analysis. And for all you guys who aren't like research nerds, it was a study that studied a whole bunch of other studies. I know it sounds redundant, but this happens all the time. And what this meta-analysis found was that those individuals who had the highest sleep quality, self-rated, were sleeping an average of seven to nine hours. That's where that golden range of seven to nine hours came from. So vast majority of people are going to fall somewhere in there. That said, I can perfectly function on six and a half. Technically, that is below the gold standard. Take my sister. If she does not get at least nine hours upwards of sometimes 11 hours of sleep, she is going to be a train wreck. By that, and by the way, guys, she's in perfect health. So there's variances on either side. And really what I want you guys to take home is don't chase the amount of hours that you're sleeping. Chase quality of those hours. Because when your sleep quality is high, the hours are going to be right where they need to. And that's going to vary day to day. But for the most part, you're going to have your own set standard of how much sleep you need. Yeah, I mean, that makes a bunch of sense and it tracks well for me too. I mean, that said, don't bullshit yourself, right? Like I did five hours a night for almost 15 years and it wasn't good, but it definitely, I, I do fine on seven, right? Like very well on seven. So yeah, yeah. sitting in that space. Um, so quality matters more than quantity. Like what are some good signs of quality sleep without having to like go get an EEG in a sleep lab? Yeah, that's super easy. Write, write this down. Okay, how long does it take you to fall asleep? If you fall asleep in more, more times than not in under five minutes, your sleep onset or sleep latency is spot on. That's good. Second criteria, are you able to stay asleep throughout the night more often than not? And then lastly, are you waking up feeling like you actually got a good night's sleep more often than not? If you can check yes on those three factors, more often than not, your sleep quality is through the roof. Congratulations, you are doing it right. If you can't, okay, now we have to look at a quality issue there. But that's how I judge all my clients' sleep quality. If they want to go ahead and get like trackers like Whoop, Oura Ring, Fitbit, Garmin, there's like a whole bunch of other stuff out there that can track sleep. I mean, by all means, go for it. But you're never going to get the quality feedback that you will get by tuning into your own body. A device can't do that for you. It only gives you objective data, which is useful, don't get me wrong, but learn how to tune into yourself. Because your body is giving you feedback all the time. You just got to listen. Yeah, man, couldn't agree more. Like I, I have an aura ring, but it, I mean, I it's not, yeah. And it's not, <laughs> but it's also not always right. Right. Like I no. probably should be a, a half size and they don't offer them. So as a result, like if it's slightly off, 
I, it'll tell me I woke up for two hours in the middle of the night and it's wrong. Yeah, just because um, it moved. Yeah, exactly. So one thing I've heard like on this quality front, consistency seems to matter. So like waking up or falling asleep at the same time, something on that. So like could we dive a little bit into that? Because like especially some people here, if they're in like a 10 plus hour training week, they don't necessarily want to wake up at 4 a.m. every day. So like how big of a deal is the consistency and what can we do to leverage that a little bit? So consistency, just for like more of a blanket statement, is a big deal because our bodies are biologically wired to have specific sleep times and wake times like more often than not. Can you deviate from those? Absolutely. But you have a genetic preference towards a specific sleep-wake cycle timing pattern that's called a chronotype. And that's wired it during your fetal years or your fetal years, your feet during the time you're in fetus. And it's really grown upon when you are a young child. So yes, it does matter. There are other factors that do come into play with that one. Your nutrition, nutrition is the biggest driver of sleep quality out there. And then the other one's going to be physical activity. So if all those are on point, you can have flexibility with sleep-wake timing. That said, more often than not, you're going to get tired at the specific time because that's when your body's like, hey, this is when it's time to go to sleep. This is when I'm done with the day. And there's going to be time, the same time that you're always waking up. It's best more often than not to respect it. And when you decide to extract currency from the bank, so to speak, that's okay. Just make sure you're putting more in than you're extracting. I mean, that makes a bunch of sense. And I feel like if we're, if we're cycling up and down a little bit, probably not the worst thing in the world, but yeah, we need to at least be targeting some level of consistency. I mean, I can tell you as someone who slept six times a week, it's not, it's not a long-term strategy. So yeah. Um, I mean, on that end, do naps help? Like are naps good? How do they play into maybe like an athletic training process? Like if we are having to like cut sleep a little short, can we make that up in the middle of the day somewhere? So since we're not talking about general pop and I'm not talking to a general pop athlete, I could have a little bit more fun with this one. Here's why I will say naps are going to be beneficial for your community and those who are listening to this podcast. The reason being is when you're putting that insane amount of load, I'm not a an ultra runner. I don't even like, like running down the street. Like I will, don't get me wrong. I'm an ex-football player. I like sprinting. So that's what I like doing. Anything distance wise, I hate it. But that said, so like, just no, seriously, like mad respect. No, you guys. I just said. <laughs> that said, it's a lot of load that is placed on your body. Yeah. That means your body's biorhythms and specifically your metabolism are going to operate at a faster pace than everybody else's. So this is where naps do come into play. If you have a training session in the morning and let's say you have a training session at night and you and your body needs to go into repair and recovery mode for like 30 minutes or maybe even like an hour, that's okay. And what you want to look out for with naps, and this applies to everybody, whether you're an ultra runner or whether you're sitting at a desk enjoying this podcast right now, is are the naps interfering with your sleep quality at night? If it's not interfering with it, by all means, go for it. Who the fuck cares if you're taking a nap? If it's helping, it's helping. That said, if you notice that your sleep quality is going down, you're having issues falling asleep or staying asleep, waking up, feeling refreshed, this is when you want to question the nap 
and more specifically when the nap is being done. Studies have shown that more often than not, for most people, naps earlier in the day will not interfere with your circadian cycle as much as naps later in the day, and that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Since you're yeah. not having a mini sleep closer to your bedtime, it's way beyond when you'll naturally go to sleep. So if you can increase that distance between the two, you'll be in good shape. That makes a ton of sense. And is there anything to the idea that you're trying to like get a nap for like a power nap versus trying to get a full sleep cycle? Like, is there a way to target that? I'm a fan of power naps. So power nap, 30 minutes. For all my clients who need a nap, that's the general recommendation that I give them. When you go beyond that 30 minutes, your body will start going through all of its in-sleep cycles. And if you wake up in the middle of that, it's going to fragment your sleep and you're going to wake up feeling like you actually didn't get any rest and a lot of your energy that wasn't there before is not really not there. It's like one step forward, four steps back. That's how you'll feel when you fragment your sleep cycle after a nap. If you're experiencing that, don't nap. It's not worth it. Yeah. I mean, that's me, man. I can't nap. I feel like garbage, but I know for some people they work like a dream. So I mean, I can't remember the last time I took a nap. It wasn't like in full transparency, like gummy induced. <laughs> yeah, man. And that fair. night I didn't sleep like shit. So yeah, don't do that. <laughs> uh, so before we dive into some stuff, like let's get, get some basics. Um, your sleep-wake cycle is pretty well dictated by like melatonin and cortisol, right? So that curves, um, can you dive into that a little bit? <laughs> yeah, so your cortisol and melatonin. So cortisol is your wake hormone for the lack of like getting in all the nitty gritty stuff. I know it's known as your stress hormone. It's, it does other things than that. It's actually very valuable. If you didn't have cortisol, you wouldn't ever wake up. You'd just be dead. Yeah. And melatonin, as we all know, is a sleep hormone. Those two hormones follow a 24-hour cycle. That's your circadian cycle. During the day, your cortisol levels are going to be higher than your melatonin. Then at night, your melatonin levels are going to be higher than your cortisol. And they follow this inverted cycle throughout a 24-hour period, provided that your environment internally is allowing that cycle to occur. So that's how that works. And these two, I call them mother hormones control every single aspect of your existence. So ensuring that your cortisol melatonin cycle is running smoothly, that's one of the keys, the unsung keys, in my opinion, to having high quality health and high quality performance, which is what you guys are all here for. Yeah, man, that makes sense to me. I mean, that's kind of what, what I found as well, especially as someone who's like played, <laughs> played my cortisol and melatonin cycles like a drum, like it's definitely... <laughs> feels about right um so if cortisol is our wake hormone that means it needs to drop for us to get to sleep right that way melatonin can rise yeah correct so if we're struggling to fall asleep it is probably that our cortisol is too high at night it there's usually only a couple of factors that are going to dictate an issue with falling asleep yeah too high cortisol levels we i see that a lot with the clients that i work with in general pop another thing is too much light exposure post sundown because light is your primary driver of your circadian cycle. And when your eyes detect light, it'll stimulate photoreceptors in the back of your head to either trigger wake or trigger sleep. And if you get that light exposure, and specifically blue light is the one that gets those photoreceptors really excited. That's why blue light's talked about with all the sleep stuff. You could inadvertently keep your wake signal 
on when you don't want it to. This is where the issue with like late night TV, tablet and screen use really comes into it. There's a whole bunch of other factors that go into that. We'll get into that later. But for the sake of our conversation right now, yes, light is a big factor. Cortisol is going to be a big factor because when you get that light stimulation, it's going to bump up your cortisol levels because that's your wake hormone. The other thing that can keep you up at night is your GI system. If you eat close to your bedtime, in terms of a large volume of food, that's going to send a strong stimulus to your brain to keep your wake processes activated because your stomach is now breaking down and digesting food so that the body can absorb it. And until that wake stimulus goes down from that volume of food, you're not going to be able to fall asleep effectively. Cool. Um, sorry, taking some notes there. So as far as light, like blue light obviously matters and I want to get back to that in a minute, but the brightness also makes a difference, right? Like I was listening to some stuff like from Andrew Huberman and yeah. we can, we can talk about light boxes as well later, mm -hmm. but like mm -hmm. if, if you have a juve light and it, it's, it's all red, but if you're pounding that thing in your eyes at like 10,000 lux right before bed, it's still not going to probably be great for you. Yeah. Exactly. Even like red, orange, and yellow lights. I mean, as the science states from my knowledge right now, like, so this could change by the time this comes out. Who fucking knows? <laughs> Those are easier on your eyes and won't trigger that wake response as much as blue light will. But we have to remember that light is light and all light spec, all light waves across the light wave spectrum that sounded terrible coming out <laughs> it's all going to if you have enough of it coming into your eyes and you're seeing it it's going yeah. to trigger the wake response like no matter what yeah that makes a bunch of sense and that's my my experience too and a bunch of my clients like yeah red light's supposed to be great for recovery and whatever but if you pound a bunch of it in your face right before bed yeah you're not getting to sleep <laughs> yeah enter one of the valid valid uses for blue light blocking glasses because yeah. a lot of those blue light blocking glasses will block this other wavelengths as well and i'm sure there are like red green and yellow light blocking glasses out there too this is where you would probably want to throw a pair on if you're going to sit in like a red light sauna before you go to sleep or just sense. sit in it at, don't don't just sit in it earlier don't do it when you're trying to go to bed it's really <laughs> yeah no feel that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and i mean if we're looking at those the hacking stuff aside right so one of the big things a lot of people definitely experience myself included are like shutting off anxiety and going to sleep or just like naturally trying to bring down that cortisol curve and like one of the best best things you and i've talked about is like hard cutoff times. So we can dive into that a little bit. Like, what is, what does that mean? Um, how does that apply to like work? And then what if your like big anxiety stuff is not necessarily work related? Like what if family is causing that? Like, how do we set that cutoff time there? Sure. So the whole premise of the hard cutoff time is to give your body a fighting chance to go from its wake processes to your sleep processes. And that takes about two hours to do. When you establish a hard cutoff time, ideally, this is going to be the time that all your energy expending related activities, for the most part, end. Not all of them can. For those of you guys who are single and you don't have kids like me, that's really easy to do. But if you have a family, it gets a little bit more complicated. Will and I will get into that in a second. But yeah, that's that hard cutoff time ideally needs to be two hours before you actually go to bed. All you're doing with that is just altering your lifestyle a wee bit to allow your sleep processes to take over and not keep your wake processes on. So that's the whole 
premise and the strategy behind the hard cutoff time. That also signals the start of your night routine. This serves as a trigger. Your night routine and how I set it up with you and I set it up with all my clients and for you guys listening, here's how I would set your guys' up. Anything goes, provided that you enjoy it and it relaxes you. That's it. You can watch TV, provided it's not interfering with your sleep quality. Cool. I don't really care. That's one thing that my girlfriend and I like to do. We turn on one of her shows because I don't have to say what's on TV. Let's <laughs> be real. I don't have a say. So we turn on one of her shows and we watch it for 30 minutes or an hour before we go to bed. And we're disciplined with it. And if you're going to use light sources at night, like, look, we're all living in the modern age. A lot of people like to use TV to relax. Just be disciplined with it. Same. Others like to read. Others like to play with their kids. Walk the dog. I have one client I've worked with that likes to knit. I'm not kidding. So again, whatever works for you, as long as it relaxes you, takes away stress, and you enjoy it, meaning that you'll consistently do it, go for it. Then the last component of that night routine is that consistent bedtime. And when you assemble this routine correctly, once you hit that hard cutoff time and you've done enough reps, as soon as you start it, your brain is going to associate that time with and that activity that you usually do to wind yourself down. Oh, hey, it's time to go to sleep. Let's put ourselves to sleep because humans are wired for, for routines. And I posed this question to you a while back, mm. the AM coffee. Yeah. If you drink coffee in the morning or tea or energy drinks, and you've been doing this longer than 90 days, hate to tell you, but caffeine is not going to be waking you up. It's the routine that's waking you up and getting you ready to go for your day. So if you can use a routine to wake yourself up, you can use a routine to put yourself to sleep. That's the whole premise of the hard cutoff time and the elaborated night routine right there. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense, man. And I mean, that's what I found too. Like you, we talked about this, but like when I was like trying to adjust my sleep, you read everything, like don't watch TV, don't be on a computer, whatever. And it's like, honestly, the best sleep I tend to get is if I watch some like kind of silly TV before bed, it just brings me down. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that you're getting poor sleep. If you watch TV, well, that's kind of went flying. Yeah. And I mean, when I read it actually stimulates me more. So I end up like just staying awake reading. It doesn't, yeah, you got to find your thing. Gosh, read it. Read puts me to sleep. I remember when I was doing 75 hard. <laughs> oh, I would always put my reading before bed because I knew that as soon as I got through like the barely the 10 pages, I know that's not a lot, but for me, like, like I like reading, but not like, I don't like reading like that. So yeah. that was a chore, but by like page 10, I'd make sure that to get it. And then by that time I'd be, out. it was great. Uh, yeah. Be also with, sleep. <laughs> that much work on all or exercise also put you to sleep. Right. But, um, so as far as like getting to sleep and relaxing, it's probably a good time to have the like alcohol marijuana discussion. Uh, oh boy, here we go. Where, where do those fit? Do they fit? <laughs> well, if we're going to choose between the two, I'd rather somebody use like CBD, THC products and alcohol. Mm. And the reason being like the thing with alcohol and why it's so disruptive with sleep we can go into a whole like it's a neurotoxin and it elevates your sugar levels and it can wake you up to go to the bathroom and it's a dehydrant. So those, those things are not that great. But what is not talked about is alcohol raises your core body temperature. 
That's if your core body, for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> If your core body temperature is too warm, you're going to wake up or you won't be able to go to sleep unless you're blackout drunk and then your body's just going to shut you down and deal with all that. Anyways, that's different. But that's really the big issue we have with alcohol is it raises your core body temperature. You're not going to be able to go through all of those in sleep cycles simply because your core body temperature is too warm. Add in the fact that your blood sugar levels are going to be elevated and you're going to be dehydrated and you're probably going to have to wake up and go to the bathroom multiple times during the night. Yeah, not a really good thing to do. Yeah. <clears throat> Marijuana or CBD, on the other hand, if I, again, if I am comparing the two, it's a more effective alternative. That said, and it's too much of a good thing will become a bad thing. A lot of my clients are ex-habitual marijuana users and their sleep was absolutely piss poor. Funny how marijuana and CBD is tuted around in the states that this is legal for you to have, as all this helps with sleep. And does it help? It actually does help because it's a cannabinoid and we have a cannabinoid system inside of our heads. That's why it works so well. And how marijuana, THC and CBD, how all that stuff works is when you ingest it, it's going to trigger that cannabinoid system to produce a neurochemical called GABA. GABA, when it's in a sufficient amount, will stimulate the production of melatonin. So you get the surge of GABA and it's going to signal your brain, that, okay, hey, we have this amount of GABA here. We're going to, we're going to make melatonin now. I guess it's time to go to sleep because that's what GABA does actually. Two hours before you go to sleep, you get this massive GABA burst and that's what happens so yes you're able to fall asleep relatively quickly what is not talked about though is how your body recycles things the human body is designed to maintain what is called homeostasis that's a tappy point so when you get this massive production of certain chemicals your body is going to meet the process of recycling those chemicals to get them out of your bloodstream just as much and when you constantly do that it can lower your sleep quality. And in time, you'll need more to get the intended result and you'll become immune to it. And this can lead to issues with GABA levels and melatonin levels. And inherently that leads you, the potential user, with fragmented sleep. And thus marijuana is not actually helping you, it's harming you. Yeah, and that tracks. And like a thing, I mean, you do, but a lot of people don't know is like all those natural sleep aids like leering root lemon balm anything like that they function by like increasing the hell out of your gaba um yep and super useful while it's a night shift right like so so with some melatonin um because when you're trying to fall asleep at 1 p.m your my body didn't want to do that but there's also definitely at least personally i found some like withdrawal stuff there so that kind of yeah and is there is there any of that shit that actually you know works (laughs) works <laughs> any of that stuff I mean, that all of this stuff works i'm not yeah. anti-supplement i'm anti-band-aid yeah and how these supplement companies market this stuff even the mm-hmm. cbd ones that have come out recently is oh you have you're having issues with sleep oh take this and it'll go away forever if only mm-hmm. that were true because if it went away forever you'd only have to get one product and that's it no that's not good for business i'll be honest with you it's not good yeah. for business 
So, like, let's talk about melatonin. That's the most frequently used sleep supplement. It's also the only hormone you can get over the counter here in the United States. No All the other, I know, nobody, nobody says that. So melatonin, you can literally go to a Whole Foods and it's sitting right there. But you can't go to the Whole Foods on the other side of the refrigerator section and get your test suspensions. It's, mm-hmm. it's, the, it's, it's the same thing, almost. Yeah. It's the same thing. So when you take melatonin consistently, you're sending the signal to your brain that, hey, I already have enough of this. You don't need to make more. Mm-hmm. And then your body stops producing it. And now you are physically hooked on the melatonin to actually get you to sleep. On top of that, the more you signal your body with these types of hormones, the less responsive your body becomes with that. So not only are you more or less physically dependent on the melatonin, your body's not actually responding to it. We see this scenario with diabetics, with insulin. It is the same thing just with melatonin. That's how your hormone system works. It's insane. And it's just the problem is how it's applied. Is melatonin a bad thing? No. Is lemon bulb a bad thing? I'd say not. Is using some CBD drops to help you get a good night's sleep, is it a bad thing? Not necessarily. If you're relying on it to get a great night's sleep, you need to get to the bottom of what's actually keeping you awake. Because anything that you're using is just a Band-Aid. It's only going to be a matter of time until it ceases working and you're left back at square zero. And I mean, that all tracks really well. My personal experience with all this stuff, like super, super useful tools, but they shouldn't be the primary tool in your tool bag, right? Like have, have a cutoff time, actually create some relaxation, all that. Exactly. And so if we're, if we have kind of our nighttime routine discussed, then let's hit it from the other end. Like what is, what does a morning routine look like that can help lead to a good night's sleep? And keep in mind, like a lot of people listening to this are probably waking up at four or 5 a.m. and running for many, many miles, right? So like, mm-hmm. what, what can we do to leverage all of that to maybe make that fit? So the first thing I'll say is if you're waking up at a specific time, keep waking up at that specific time. I said earlier that your circadian cycle can anchor itself to times that, it, that are outside of its genetic predisposition as long as you're doing it consistently. So you can alter that a little bit. You just have to be consistent with it. And let's say that you are an ultra runner and you basically wake up and you're going to go train. Make sure that you get something in your system to blunt your cortisol and rebalance out your blood sugar levels. Inherently, I'm saying eat something, specifically carbohydrate tea, because you're going to need it. Carbohydrate and you're more the expert here. Well, maybe some dietary fat, depending on how long the run is. But the whole point is just get something into your system. Otherwise, your cortisol levels are going to go through the roof and all your other biorhythms for the rest of the day are going to be a little bit wonky, like your metabolism and your hunger signals, simply because you didn't get that food in when your body was needing it the most. So that's how I would set up just the wake up and then what you're doing right before you go out for a run. But in the context of like all morning routines, your morning routine should not cause you stress. It should take away stress and set you up for a very successful day. Because I've not met one person who has a stress-free day that has issues sleeping. And we've all experienced a day where everything went 
ride corn to plane and we started off our day correctly and we slept great. And we also can remember a day where we got off on the wrong side of the bed, the day started on the wrong foot, and we slept terribly that night. Sleep problems have their roots in what goes on during the day. And a lot of how your day goes is dictated by what you first do in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say like light should probably be in there as well. Um, yes. Get in the sunlight, guys. If you're not living like really far up north and you're under 40 feet of snow, get outside. Sunrise is a great time to get in the light and it's going to reinforce that sleep-wake timing. You want that. For sure. If you can't, okay, let's say you live up north and the sun's not out when you wake up. Just get some bright light exposure. That's where artificial lights actually do come in handy. Any type of bright light exposure is going to give you that trigger. And it's just going to reinforce the circadian cycle's pattern. And when that pattern is constantly anchored, your sleep quality is going to be high. And all of your internal processes that you're relying on for high performance are going to be marching to the beat of the same drum, firing on all cylinders. The best tool in my toolbox when I was working night shift was one of those like 10,000 lux things. I, yeah. I got it for like 40 bucks on Amazon and it changed my season. So oh, yeah. light, light in the eyes. Absolutely. Yeah, for, for all of those who are watching this or, or listening to this, I don't know if you're going to release this video of this. Yeah, if you're living in a part of the world where it's dark for a specific season, I would heavily recommend getting a light box and mm-hmm. or just getting some sort of bright light exposure because you can't escape that environment unless you move. Yeah. And more often than not, you're probably not going to want to make that <laughs> drastic of a change for your sleep. So what you really can do is make is get that light box and just make sure that you're getting that bright light exposure earlier in the day. It'll do wonders with your overall state of health and especially your mental health. Cool. And then specifically like shifting into some basics for athletes here, like for athletes, like a lot of us have heard that like LeBron sleeps nine, 10 hours a night. Um, some of that is naps clear to be clear, but still. Mm-hmm. So like, do athletes need more sleep? Is it more important? Depends on the level of the athlete. I'd say if you're rolling around like LeBron or like Tom Brady, I know he retired. I'm very bummed by that. Anyway, anyways, if you're rolling around and this is your <laughs> life or like to be super relevant for you, this audience here, like uh, the Iron Cowboy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To be super relevant here, like, yeah, you're going to have to incorporate naps. When you're training on that level and that is your career, that is your life, naps are going to be the thing that allows you to perform at your highest levels with multiple training sessions during the day or when you're not able to operate on a full night's sleep. This is like one of the few times where I will say, and you can count me on this, well, where naps will help in this situation where sleep at night is not going to be as much ideally though unless you're basically being the iron cowboy and you're trying to do what was it 50 triathlons and how many days i think it was 50 days something like, like 101 iron mans and 101 oh, days Ironmans. it's just yeah. un- unbelievable anyway yeah <laughs> and i think it was in like a each, there was a new one each day he was yeah. operating on fragmented sleep like mm-hmm. it was not a good situation and he hurt himself multiple times during oh yes there's a reason up with yeah. massive adrenal dysfunction and everything like yes. one of the few, few true instances of overtraining i can possibly point to like usually it's under recovery he absolutely overtrained himself <laughs> yes yes so provided you're not rowing that type of schedule mm-hmm. again yes 
you're don't be surprised if you're sleeping longer. <sighs> your sleep is your primary recovery method. All of your body's physical recovery mainly occurs during sleep. So if you're beating it up, running around or lifting weights, what it is, and you're placing that massive stimulus on your body, yeah, you're going to sleep a lot longer than most people. And that's totally okay. So yeah, for an athlete, your sleep is your best friend. It needs to be prioritized because your performance is going to be directly related to how well you're sleeping. Yeah. I mean, without it, you can't like create growth hormone and testosterone and all that stuff. Right. Nope. And you'll operate on six cylinders or five cylinders instead of eight cylinders, which every person here wants to consistently operate on eight cylinders. If you want to do that. Yeah. You need to make sure you're getting sleep. And they've even done some studies on Olympic athletes where they even like loaded sleep the week before a competition. So their training cycles will be like five, six hours. And then we'll do like nine for the week prior and their performance skyrocketed, which Uh makes some sense. Basically sleep extra during your taper and it'll probably help out. Yeah. Yeah. If you can help, if you can help it, never sacrifice your sleep for the, for performance, never. Because when your sleep quality goes down, your ability to perform goes down as well. Simply because your body's not going to be willing to let you tap into the energy reserves that are going to allow you to have those high performance levels. It's going to keep you at a, at a sub state at best. Cool. Well, one thing I definitely want to make sure we touch on before we get rolling is some chronotype stuff, right? Cause like, this is, this yeah. is kind of what you've been, you and I've been talking about this a lot lately and this is some new stuff that I think can really help some people. Um, so first, I think we should define what is the circadian rhythm? <laughs> so a circadian rhythm is your body's 24-hour processes, and our bodies operate on that particular 24-hour cycle. That is your circadian rhythm. Now, your chronotype, I did mention this uh, like subliminally a little bit earlier when I said that everyone has a genetic preference for a specific like sleep and wake timing pattern. Mm-hmm. That's your chronotype. That is your genetic predisposition for when your circadian cycle enters its sleep phase and when it enters its wake phase. And there are four known types. If you're familiar with chronotype or if you did a quick Google, you'll find that these chronotypes are characterized by animals. I do it a little bit differently. Just I couldn't wrap my head around the whole animal thing. Like, like. One of the chronotypes is a bear. That makes no sense. The dolphin one actually did make sense, but even to a point, it really didn't make sense. I digress on that. But there are four chronotypes. And how these work is your earliest type is going to wake up way earlier than most people. It's me. These people are what you call your morning types, your early birds. They're up before the sun. That's your chronotype one. Chronotype two is the vast majority of the human population. They rise with the sun and set with the sun. There are two subtypes to this one, unlike all the others. There's an early two and a late two. The early two is just going to get up a little bit before the sun, and the late two gets up a little bit later after the sun. That, chronotype three, that's going to be your night owl. These people rise well after the sun has already risen and they stay up later anywhere from about 12 a.m to 1 a.m what characterizes this particular type from the subtype two that's late is type three has two known cortisol bursts one when they wake up 
and one later in the evening closer to their bedtime. So for any of you guys who always seem to have this creative spurt around eight to 10 at night and you're a night owl, you're probably this type. Then you have your last type, which is the rarest and the one that not too many people know about simply because there's not a lot of people who fit this bill on this earth. This is your misnomered insomniac. This particular type has a very sporadic sleep-wake cycle. They can wake up technically at any time and go to bed at any time, but more often than not, they're waking up well into the afternoon and they're going to sleep when chronotype one, like me, is waking up somewhere around about 4 to 5 a.m. So those are the four types. And these specific types don't just control when you wake up and when you go to bed. They control all of your body's internal biorhythms and they also influence your behavior. So yes, this is relatively new stuff. It's been around since the 90s, but a lot of new information has come out in the past few years that is absolutely amazing. And it's helping a lot of people like lose weight, increase their performance it's it's mind-boggling yeah i mean learning about this a few years ago is really helpful and i've seen everything from like three to six chronotypes right and the way yeah. you broke it down makes makes a lot more sense to me than i've seen as well so i've, I've always really liked that breakdown um one thing that i know i've thought about is like can you have two um does it change? Cause like, for example, some, some moments in my year, I'll feel a little more like one. Sometimes I'll feel a little more like three, you know, that's kind of common. And then like, I know for, for a fact, when I was in my early twenties, I was more of a like pretty severe night owl. And then now it's uh, shifted a lot earlier. So like, does this shift throughout your cycle? Like what, what do we got? So you can shift your circadian cycle around to everything. And as with all things with the human body, nothing is inherently set in stone. Yes, you're going to have a dominant chronotype. You're going to be able to resonate and show other different types of chronotypes depending on like the environment is going to be a big one. If you're staying up later, more than likely, you're going to start having the behavioral tendencies of a later chronotype. I know for me, if I continuously stay up late, I will mimic the behaviors of a type four chronotype and the type four chronotypes behavioral characteristics are they're very prone to stress. They're high anxiety. They're very creative. They're very thoughtful. They're highly intelligent people, but they're very neurotic. So I know if I'm staying up late and I start displaying those neurotic behaviors that, Oh, Hey, my circadian cycle is trying to shift too far away from what I'm wired for, and those are night and day opposites because I'm a type one, a type four is like literally the other side of the spectrum. But yeah, you can identify yourself with other types and it's going to change based off of where you're at in your life primarily. As the research says now, you have three distinct chronotype shifts during your lifetime. And it makes sense because how you, how you were sleeping when you were a child is much different than when you were a teen is much different to when you're an adult. And for those of you who are older, let's say you're past age, you're like 50, 60, and you're listening to this, you had a chronotype shift again. And those are the times where you're going to shift from childhood to adolescence, adolescence to adulthood, and then adulthood to old age. That one's the most variable because there's no distinct like hormone marker, unless it's with women who go through menopause. That marks 
the chronotype shift for them. But for men, it's a little bit different and not a lot is known about that particular chronotype shift in terms of when does it actually occur. All that is out there suggests anything from 55 to 70 is when that occurs. But yeah, it shifts throughout your lifespan and you can display different behavioral attributes just because we're all human and nothing is inherently going to be completely in a box or set in stone. Yeah, that makes a bunch of sense, man. I mean, I, I tend to go a little later when I'm more stressed, right? So like the yeah. fact that it is like behavioral and lifestyle dictated makes it yeah. makes a bunch of sense. Um, so with all that, like how can an athlete who's training heavily use that information to their advantage to get the most out of their training and like while also living a healthy life, like assume this person isn't a professional, but they probably train as much as some professionals. All right. So when it comes to training and your chronotype, what you really want to follow is when your cortisol levels are going to be highest. And for most of us, it's going to be within the first few hours that you wake up. Can you train beyond that? Absolutely. Like for me, my prime time for intense physical activity. If it's not intense, I have a lot more leeway with it. But if I'm doing something intense or doing something new or something I don't want to do, I have to do it pretty much within the first couple of hours when I'm waking up when my energy is highest. And this is for you guys, I for your training, especially if it's new or it's intense, I would shift, if you can, your training earlier in the day. For your earlier chronotypes, this is going to be right when you wake up. Your type twos, which is your most people, 55% of the world is this type. You can do this in the morning. You can do it in the afternoon. You can do it in the early evening. But anything after early evening, your cortisol levels dip off too much and you're not going to see a massive return on the training session in terms of like energy expended to what you get on the training back end. Gains gotten for lack of a better term. Sure. For your type threes, yes, you can do it sometime when you wake up. You can also do it later in the evening because this type has that cortisol bump. And if you're a type four listening to this at two in the morning, two in the morning is a great time to do this because that's when your cortisol levels are going to be highest. Type fours, cortisol levels peak in the evening and they're lowest during the actual day. So that's how I would set it up per chronotype. And that's, again, you're just looking at how all of your major hormones are being controlled and influenced by your circadian cycle. And you're just aligning specific lifestyle choices within the cycle to optimize what you're doing. That's it. Yeah, that makes sense. And say your sleep is kind of wonky right now. Like I know we should try and fix that first. And oh, yeah. most of my people kind of know the like postseason off season concept, and that should be more of a like healing moment. But if you have a race coming up in a couple months and you're really like really in season prepping up for this race, like what can we do right now to start to make some improvements? Like what are some quick things, easy, like tangible stuff we can do in the next like week or two to start to see big improvements in sleep? Yeah. So if you're an athlete and you're having issues with sleep, more than likely you're having one of two issues or both. You have, you're either having issues falling asleep or staying asleep. Okay. Let's say you have done the routines and you're doing everything correctly and it still hasn't happened. Okay. That, that happens with a lot of people. Let's look at when we're timing specific nutrients. We're going to talk about carbohydrates right now. One trick 
that I use with my clients who are more high performing, they're more athletic than a lot of my other clients are, especially if they're having early morning training sessions and they don't have a massive volume of food early in the morning with their training session, you'll want to consume carbohydrates closer to your bedtime. Carbohydrate consumption before bed is going to serve one of two purposes. Either one, it's going to get you into a nice, happy, relaxed mode because carbohydrates stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, which makes you very relaxed and happy. When you're relaxed, you're more likely going to go to sleep. And or it's going to balance out your blood sugar levels and you'll be able to stay asleep longer without waking up and having to go to the fridge and get something to eat because you woke up feeling anxious, hungry, starving, the whole nine yards. So that would be the best immediate trick that I could give you. The other thing that you can do is lessen your training load for a bit and allow your body to recover more before you start pushing harder. That one's easier said than done. Being an athlete and being a high performer myself, I, I will run through a brick wall and I like doing it. Yeah, that's so a lot of people in this group. Yes. <laughs> So I understand that, oh, what is this? Oh, I have to take a, I have to dial it back a little bit. That's hard to wrap your head around. I understand that a hundred percent. But sometimes guys, one step back equals three steps forward. Be tactical with it. Mm. Don't exist at, let's say 70% training efficiency. Just step back to 70%. Let your circadian cycle reset itself. And then slowly increase it to, okay, 72, 75, 80, and then wherever you, you need to be at, again. Just monitor how your body's responding. But between all of us, just eat more carbohydrates, you'll be fine. <laughs> it's the best tip I can give you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. They've, uh, people have heard that from me more than once. Um, yeah, they're oh. all going to message you, how are you more carbs? The guy oh, on the podcast said I can. Oh God. Yeah. I it's it's a tough thing, man. Cause like for certain people in this community, I think the tough thing with ultra runners is like anything from like a 50k to like six day races count. So if you're doing like a six day free, this is this is just gonna be audio. I uh wish you could all have seen Nick's face after six day race. Anyway, um six day oh, race, that's... you can get away on a much more like keto-ish diet right because you're moving yes. slow for a really long period of time but when you're doing a 50 yeah. day it's like it's a marathon man you need to you need to yeah. eat a fucking banana it's what it yeah. is like <laughs> even though like for those longer races yes you're using your oxidative system that's mm -hmm. the system that uses fat that's for all you distance guys that's the one you primarily use so yes you're going to mm -hmm. need more dietary fat but even like Within the first about, let's say, two minutes that you start running, you're still oh. using carbohydrates. And it can be all the way up to about five or 10 minutes into your race that you're using carbohydrates. Basically, I mean, you're using them yeah. a lot. It, it really mm -hmm. depends on pacing and what the event is. Like, it's, it's exactly. kind of what makes this hard. Like, you'll hear ultra running nutrition and it just, or sleep or whatever. And like, it's, it's 12 sports under one banner. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. But cool. Um, been really helpful, man. We'll kind of wrap up here and then let you in on your day. A couple of rapid fire um, from from the Facebook group. One was partially in jest, but also kind of serious. How do I not need as much sleep? 
how do you not need as much sleep? Here, here's how you not need as much sleep. Focus on getting insanely high quality sleep and you'll be just fine. Beautiful. <laughs> um, so if you're running hundred miles and sleep deprivation is like pretty guaranteed, um, would it make, and I know this isn't your jam, but does this make sense to you? Would it make some sense to do like couple training cycles where you're sleep deprived to get the practice in and then the rest of your time really yeah, focus on your I sleep? Would. I would. And look at, and, and this makes sense. Look at how the military trains its highest performers. Bingo. <laughs> and this is all backed by science. Your body can adapt to whatever it can recover to. If you're going to run a hundred miles, just I'm guessing you're not going to run a hundred miles like every week. So just make sure you have the recovery time on the back end from that race and you'll be just fine, but don't worry about it. But I would train in more of a sleep deprived state. So you know what to expect. The less surprises you have, the less stress you're going to have. And then the more able you are going to be to perform at the max level that you can during that event. Yeah. I've, I've made the feeling to like seal buds training, right? Like yes, they, go, they exactly. go through large chunks of that to yeah. know what it's like. And then the rest of their years, like, yes, focused on yes. And for those of you guys who want to know more about the specific event that we're talking about, it's called hell week. Oh God. <laughs> That's where they go for five days and they have maybe, maybe four hours of sleep between those five days. There's nonstop physical activity, What they yeah. don't tell you on the back end is once they're done, they're, these guys are done. Well, they're, they're done with that part of selection for buds, assuming that they pass, but they're done for a good week before they do anything else. That's how long the recovery time is for that. So take that in mind as you're setting up your 100-mile race. When you're going to run 100 miles, you're probably going to need like a week to recover from that. Oh, yeah. When you finish that, your cytokines and uh, CK, creatine kinase stores, like you're, you're physically, technically injured. There's no way you're not. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you can't sleep in anymore. Like I always wake up at 4.30. If I fall asleep at 10, I'm good. If I wake, fall asleep at 11.30, I still wake up at 4.30, even if I don't have training. So like this habituation doesn't make sense. Anything to do? Like, do I just yeah, fall asleep at 10 sense. all the time? <laughs> it, it could be one of two things. Either that's your chronotype influencing when you wake up or you've consistently woken up at that time for so long. That's what your body knows is normal. And like I said earlier, your body operates based off routines and what it knows the most is what it's going to always do. Mm -hmm. So pretty much you have to either fall asleep earlier if it's in this rhythm or yeah. except you're going to be a little tired. Yeah. At that cool. particular, at that particular rate. Yes. And then on that note, just focus on improving the quality of sleep and you'll be just fine. percent. And then why are you tired when you sleep too much? <laughs> like if you're like, and I, I saw a couple of versions of this, so like I'm oversleeping. I overslept one day and I felt, felt like worse. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I was hyper busy, I felt better on fewer hours of sleep. Now that I'm like, not, I'm sleeping longer. I'm not always rested. So like, why, how can we oversleep? So there's multiple reasons why people quote oversleep and in full transparency, this aspect of sleep is not as well known as less sleep duration, just because not too many people have the, have the problem with I'm sleeping too much, but it yeah. does happen. And a lot of times when somebody is sleeping beyond their normal, like, let's say they sleep seven hours and they're sleeping nine or 10, their body is recovering from something. But let's say you just oversleep just for, for some odd reason, you oversleep and why you feel groggy is your cortisol levels never peak. And you have too much melatonin running around in your system and you're going to be in a semi groggy state just due to that hormone imbalance. And the best way to get rid of that is do some high 
physical activity. This is how I handle jet lag people. Got it. When you're shifting time zones, this does happen. So what you need to do is get in the light, do it, do a high upbeat, intense workout and get some food in you and act like nothing ever happened. It yeah. works wonders. Cool. I'm going to have to do that in two days. <laughs> yeah, man. Feel that. Cool. Well, you've given us a bunch of stuff, man. Um, let's like close out. Uh, where can we find you? What do you have for offer? Please mention the Sleep Secrets book, all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as Will said, I do, have, I do have an ebook out that I'm more than happy to give to all of you. I'm super easy to find. Nick Real, I'm most active on Facebook and Instagram, and that's R I E L L. I do have a Facebook group. It's called Sleep Secrets. I go into a lot of this stuff more in depth inside of that group. And that is where you can access my ebook, Sleep Secrets. Inside are the seven best kept secrets to a great night's sleep that you are more than likely not aware of. And when you apply it, it's going to add hours to your sleep. So you'll definitely want a copy. If I had a copy of this when I was going through my insomnia years, uh, it would have saved my life. So make sure you get a copy. Oh, man. Well, thank you. Appreciate the time. Thank you. And yeah, it's been great. So thanks, man. And anybody who struggles with sleep out there, like, definitely talk to Nick. If you're really messed up, like consider cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Like we're neither of us are therapists or clinicians, but we can definitely help you out. So find Nick and all those places and I'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.